listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at CanadianStreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. Okay, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, if I get you to stand together as we read from, from the Word of God, please. I'm going to start at uh, verse 6 down to 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, as we just uh, sang, Father, we do know that we have been so affected by this incident in in our history as humans, Lord. And Father, that the curse has penetrated so deep into our hearts, Lord, and and yet you have been gracious, you have been patient with us, Father. And so we, we worship you and we praise you, Lord, and ask that you would give us understanding, Lord, of what you have done, and Lord, of the own war that is going on in our hearts, between our flesh and our spirit now, Father, as your spirit has filled us and caused us to be born again. Lord, we we thank you for your word and just ask that you would give us attentive hearts this morning and that you would open our ears and eyes that we might see and hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the past several sermons, we've been looking at the roles of men and women, and this issue of our fallen nature, uh, you could say is like an ocean, and the roles of men and women might be like a fish in that ocean. And so it definitely has massive implications into how we relate to one another, but the implications of this incident are so far-reaching that it goes beyond just who we are as men and women, and it goes um, before our standing with God and into eternity. And so it has massive implications. So I may not be talking as much specifically about our roles that we've been looking at, but it's definitely there. The implications are definitely there, as you will see as we look through some of these texts this morning. I was looking at, uh, 
I uh, don't remember much from, from biology class, and so I had to, to Google it, uh, how the human eye works, because I could remember that the human eye was completely dependent upon light in order to function, that it had to have light in order to, to see an image. And um, as best I understand, that the, the light is projected through our lens, which focuses the image on the back of the eye, and then that is projected by the optic, optic nerve to our brain, so our eyes are constantly taking pictures, in a sense, of the things around us. But apart from light, if there's no light, the eye stops working. It cannot work. And so I want you to keep that picture in mind as we look at the fall and what happened to the soul of us as humans, because there's a, a very good parallel with the human eye. So we see, first of all, uh, the fall of mankind, that they ate of the forbidden fruit, that they sought to be wise, it said in chapter 3, verse 6, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, and man fell. Man um, transgressed the law of God and committed spiritual suicide. But there's a several things that are happening, and, and they're all outward things that, are, that start happening with Adam and Eve, and you see some very peculiar Actions and, and so what these are, we must understand, is these are outward expressions of an inward change. The outward things that we're seeing, that they're all of a sudden ashamed of their nakedness, they're all of a sudden trying to hide from God, those aren't really the issues that are going on. Those are just expressions. Those are like, it's like a fountain that begins flowing, that there was once pure, clean water flowing from Adam and Eve, but the fountain switched the water became poison and it started to flow out. And so we see their actions also begin to change. In our culture, if, if Adam and Eve had been in our culture today, they probably would have been told that they just need to go to a, a naked uh, seminar and they need to get some counseling on this naked issue and they can get over it and they need to work on their self-esteem and they need to just learn to love themselves again. Is that not the message we've been taught in our culture that the solution to the outward things that we see that we don't like in our lives can be solved by a book or a counseling session. But we really don't want to address the deeper issue. We don't want to address the fountain from which all these things are flowing. We've often been taught the lie that we are not really sinful people as much as we do sinful things. We just do bad things, but inside we're really pretty good. We're pretty moral people. The Bible teaches something very different. We are sinful people, and because of that, we do sinful things. And so you see the difference. The problem is the source, not so much the actions that we see. So we see the nakedness, but it's really a deeper issue that is going on. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. From our hearts, from our inward man flows everything. And so when we see things coming out of our lives that disturb us, that bother us, the issue is not to change the things we see. The issue is our heart. It is an inward problem. So we see a shift in what's happening with Adam and Eve. And it's because of what has happened internally, what has happened spiritually. So why are they ashamed of their nakedness? What, what is the switch that has happened? And I think there is a link, and I've tried to study this some uh, this week, and uh, it's, it's a massive issue, I realize, and I've just kind of scratched the surface, but the deeper issue, 
And oftentimes I think we, we look at the fall of Adam and Eve and we think the big sin was that they just disobeyed. It, was, it wasn't really so much about what they were going after. It was just that God said, don't eat this fruit, and they ate it. Well, that was definitely a sin. There is something else that's going on too. And I think the name of the tree gives us an indication as to what happened. Remember the name of the tree, God said, was the, the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. And I was looking at one definition of that word knowledge, and they said in that place there, it could also be interpreted um, to distinguish between good and evil. So don't think of it, I don't think as much as I know what evil is and I know what good is, but rather they were going after the ability to distinguish between good and evil. They wanted to be like God in that they had the right to determine what was good and what was evil. And I think that might be more of the issue that happened. We see that, we just read that Eve um, sought after the fruit because it was able to make her wise. She wanted that kind of wisdom. And God said um, in, in 3.22, later on, we didn't read that this morning, but if you jump down to 3.22, it said, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Or I think you could interpret it, uh, distinguishing good and evil. And so you start to see what's happening with the human heart, with the human soul. That, that Adam and Eve reached out not so much just to have a good piece of fruit, but they wanted to be like God in the sense that they could distinguish for themselves what was good and what was evil for their lives. And we see that Satan knew that. And that's exactly where he went with Eve. And he said that God it didn't really want you to become like him. And that was why... He didn't want you to eat of the fruit. He says in 3 verse 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's what they were reaching out for, more than just a tasty piece of fruit or something that was appealing. It was a desire to distinguish for themselves what was good and what was evil. I found uh, John Piper put it this way, which I found was helpful for myself. He said, when you have the knowledge of good and evil, you have the capacity or the right to determine what is good and evil for yourself. And so it's the self-determining will that Adam and Eve reached out for. We see in Genesis 3.22 that God has that. That's a characteristic of God, the knowledge of good and evil. In 1 Kings 3.9, Solomon prays for it in a good sense, as a king for wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil as a king. In Deuteronomy 1.39, it tells us that children do not have the knowledge of good and evil. And in 2 Samuel 19.35, it tells us that senile people no longer have this knowledge of good and evil. And so this has to be part of how we define sin, how we define what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. God, I think, was, was basically telling Adam and Eve that you need to trust me. Do not lose the childlike faith. You need to trust me that I will determine for you what is good and what, it, what is evil. Don't try to become like me in that sense. Trust me to determine what is good for you and bad. And so the essence of the fall And I think of every sin that we commit, the essence of that is a desire not to be dependent upon God. It is a desire to be self-sufficient, self 
dependent as humans. We do not want to be dependent upon God in anything. And I think that begins to come, become the source of sin and the source of our rebellion against God. Romans 1, 21 to 23 reads, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And so it results in an exchanging of God's glory, of a dependence upon God for glorifying ourselves and glorifying what we are capable to do as men and women. So we see the shame for their nakedness comes, and then we see, uh, I would think, some of the immediate consequences of this fall of Adam and Eve. And we see it that they are hiding from God. They hear the presence of the Lord in the garden, and they hide themselves. And so we see there are several relationships immediately destroyed because of this rebellion against God, because of this desire to discern good and evil for themselves and not trust in God. We see that man has destroyed his relationship with God. He has separated himself from dependence upon God and has now come become self-dependent and therefore destroys his, his relationship with his father. He destroys his relationship with himself. We are designed to worship and to delight in God. But when we exchange that for delighting in ourselves, we kill our own soul. We destroy the very purpose for which we were made to live. And lastly, we see that the relationship between one another is destroyed as well as a part of this curse. And I think the closer the relationship is, the more we see this. This is why um, my wife and I have often talked, why is it that those we love the most, we tend to hurt the worst? Why is that? And it's because of this. And so the closer the relationship, the more we're going to see the expression of this destruction according to our flesh. We see Adam, he, he no longer cherishes the wife that he did in, in verse uh, chapter 2. And he said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And you can hear the cherishing, the excitement in his voice. But you don't hear this sound in Adam's voice as God comes and confronts him. What does he say? He said, that woman who you gave to be with me. In essence, Adam is saying, if you want to kill somebody, God, kill her. She made me eat it. Don't kill me. Kill her. It's her fault. And so the man the no longer cherishes the woman as he ought to. And we see the blame passing. Adam blames God and his wife. The woman blames the serpent. And so the curse begins upon mankind. The great fall of our human race happened in this moment. So the second question I wanted to ask this morning was, what about the death? And in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gave Adam a commandment, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I think I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. What happened to the death that God had promised to Adam and Eve? Because we see that he did not physically kill them, although he had every right to kill them in that moment. He did not. 
Instead, he acted in grace. And uh, we see in regards to physical death, God kills an animal and he uses the hide to cover them with the hide of that animal later on in chapter 3. It says, it doesn't say what kind of animal. I would like to think possibly a sheep, but we don't know. And so you see a picture of Christ already in God's design against this promised death, that there is grace here in the garden. But I do believe there was a death that happened that day. And it wasn't a physical death, but rather a spiritual death. Spiritually, man and woman died that day. And so I think the promise in that sense was very much fulfilled. If you turn to Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, the book of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis takes this reality of man's sin, man's depravity, and it, it, it teaches us what it looks like through stories. And so you read the book of Genesis, and you have story after story after story of how man has fallen, and this is expressed in rebellion to God, and God brings justice and judgment. And that's how Genesis teaches us about the fall. But Paul does it in Romans um, through expository teaching. He gives us a commentary on what happened in that moment. Romans 5.12, I'm going to read a section of that. Uh, Romans 5.12, and this is like a commentary now on Genesis. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And so Paul's telling us what happened, that sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, and as a result, all of their offspring is cursed with this death through sin. And then we, in a sense, consummate that sin in our own lives through our own personal sinning, that we all stand accountable. We can't say, well, it's just Adam's fault. I'm this way and I can't help it. No, we are accountable before a holy God because he said all have sinned. And so there's a double curse happening here upon mankind. So the death happened. He said, death through sin. And so death spread to all men. So he's not talking so much about a physical death, about rather a spiritual death. James 1, 13 and 15 says, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so this wasn't God's um, authorship here of sin. He did not tempt Adam and Eve. He was obviously aware of it. He obviously allowed it to be part of the great plan. But he did not tempt them, nor did he cause them to sin. James goes on and says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. And the verse in Romans 6.23 we know very well, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So there is a death that happened. The promise was fulfilled that when they ate, a death would occur. And it was, I think, primarily a spiritual death 
of their souls died before God as their eyes were removed um, and they could no longer see the light of God's glory. The greatest reality in our lives, and I think if we could really begin to grasp this, the greatest reality is the spiritual reality. We live in a physical world that's constantly screaming, this is the great reality. You need to be comfortable physically. You need to have full bank accounts. We need to be complete in this reality. But no, this is not the great reality. There is a spiritual reality that we cannot see with our physical eyes. And so... When things happen in that realm, they have far greater implications than like we see with this death of Adam and Eve. An old uh, pastor, I think he was the 1800s, named James Stalker, he wrote about the fall. He said, The nature of man, according to Paul, normally consists of three sections, body, soul, and spirit. In his original constitution, these occupy definite relations of superiority and subordination to one another. The spirit was supreme, he said, when Adam and Eve were created. The spirit of man directed his life. It reigned in the human body. And the body was undermost and the soul occupying the middle. But the fall disarranged this order and all sin consists in the usurpation of the body or the soul and the place of the spirit. And so... In fallen man, these two inferior sections of human nature, which is what Paul calls the flesh, or that side of human nature which looks to the world and time, have taken possession of the throne and completely rule the life. While the spirit side of the man, which looks towards God and eternity, has been dethroned and reduced to a condition of inefficiency and death. So it is though Satan, in that moment, he gouged out the eyes of Adam and Eve. Spiritually, their eyes were removed, and they no longer had any means to see spiritually or to perceive spiritually. And so the flesh of mankind begins to reign in the hearts of man. And we see the kingdom of God is transferred into the kingdom of darkness through this fall, the kingdom of Satan, that we now, if we are unregenerate, live in bondage to. So it is a spiritual death that happened, and it is far-reaching in its effect. And the third and, and last question I wanted to ask this morning was what is the depth of the of the death? How bad are we off? I mean, is it so we can't do anything spiritually, or do we have a little bit of good in us now that responds to God? How bad is it? What is our state as human beings when we are born? If we're ever going to understand the beauty of the gospel, of what Christ has done, or if we ever are going to understand the seriousness of sin, we must understand this issue of what happened and how bad it is. Otherwise, we will look at our sin as just kind of a casual thing, and what Christ did on the cross was a nice gesture, but not really that significant, unless we understand what state we are in as fallen men and women. J.C. Ryle wrote, If no one less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, 
Sin must be far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of him who came into the world to save sinners. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. So we don't measure the the seriousness of our sin or the level of our depravity on our neighbor down the road. And like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy compared to him. Uh, I shovel my neighbor's driveway once in a while. Not here you wouldn't, but in town maybe. I'm a pretty good guy. But if we measure ourselves against Christ himself, it is then that we begin to see the seriousness of what happened and that it cost God himself the death on the cross needs to teach us the seriousness of our fall and our estate as men and women. So I think the first thing the Bible teaches us, and I don't think anybody would disagree on this point, is that the death is total in the sense that it spreads to everyone. There is not one person apart from Christ himself who was not born into the death. My little five-day-old baby boy Nathan is born into the curse of sin. He is born with the fallen nature. And this affects all of us. There is nobody that is not affected by this fall. And so in that sense, it is total. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, As sin came into the world, we just read, through one man, and death through sin spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul quotes in Romans as well, from Psalms 14, 1-3, it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. And so the the fall is total in the sense that it reaches everybody born of Adam. And of course, the only one who was not born of Adam was Christ himself, who was born of the Spirit. Secondly, it is a total death in regards to our ability to respond to God. We are left totally depraved, totally helpless in our sin, that we cannot respond to God if we are left to ourselves. I think the Bible is so clear on this as well. Turn over a few chapters in Romans to Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 6, talking about the seriousness of our sin. Romans 8, 6 says, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we see that we're all born into the flesh. And so we are left helpless if we are left by ourselves to respond to God spiritually. The fall has rendered us completely blind and helpless to respond to God. We are dead, other places say in the scripture, in our trespasses and sins. We are lost, we are blind, we are cut off, we are alienated, we are totally depraved. Whichever way you want to say it, the truth is there that we are helplessly fallen into sin and we are born as such. 
And so until we begin to understand this, we will continue on in our own strength, all the while making a mockery of the cross of Christ. Do you understand that if if we can do it, if we can somehow muster up enough strength to do good things for God, then the cross of Christ is really a mockery to mankind. He didn't really need to do that if we could somehow save ourselves or please God in our own strength. And so it makes a mockery of the cross of Christ if we don't start here. Christ had to come because of our helplessness and inability to save ourselves. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are when we are born. That's who we start off. Children of disobedience, sons of wrath. By nature, that's who we are. And then the amazing phrase in Ephesians 2 there, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is not by works, it is by grace, which means it is God's gift and nothing we earned through our own performance or ability. It is by grace. As a bit of a side note, I found Henry Blackaby's comment on this so helpful as we seek to evangelize. As you understand that man left to himself cannot respond to God, as Henry Blackaby pointed out, so then when you see somebody asking spiritual questions, when you see somebody seeking the Lord, you can rest assured that God is working there and you can join him there because man does not do that by himself. That means God is stirring that person's heart. And so go, talk to him, just open the word to him and you will be amazed to see God, you are working here because this is not of the natural man to seek the Lord. So prayerfully ask God to show you where he's he's working in your friends at work or your family who does not know the Lord. That is an indication of God's spirit. So we see that our death is total in that it leaves us unable to respond. Just one more text and then we'll move on to the next part. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Very similar to the passage in Romans talking about our ability to respond to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. So the natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly. And he's not even able to understand them because of our darkened heart and our eyes that no longer see. Thirdly, and lastly, about how bad are we, is the death is total 
Because everything we do naturally is sin. This was a hard one for me to swallow um, as I, the Lord began to confront me on some of these things. It's very hard to swallow this. So you need to let the scriptures be an authority on this one. Everything we do naturally is sin in the eyes of God. Many of you have probably memorized Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Everything that is done outside of faith is offensive to our holy God. And so it's not so much about the deeds, but rather are they done in faith that is rather determined if they are pleasing to God or not. We are so ignorant as humans to this reality that we like to think some things we do or we see somebody build a children's hospital or they do big campaigns for relief programs for world hunger and we think, oh, God must be really happy about that. But that is an offense to God if it is not done in faith. Now, I need to be careful because I do believe there are different levels of this. Obviously, somebody building a children's hospital I don't think is going to um, serve the same judgment as, say, Adolf Hitler. There are different levels to this, to the, to the wrath of God. But fundamentally, the issue, it's still sin. It's still not glorifying to God. Even the good things that we'd look around and say, man, that's good. That, that's a good idea, you know, the, the hunger programs or uh, orphanages. If they are not done in the name of our God, they are sin and they are offensive. And therefore, the death is total in the sense that everything we do naturally is offensive to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, which is another one we should all know, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is a command of Scripture. And so you could turn it around and you could say, so whatever we do not do to the glory of God would be sin then, right? To disobey that command, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. So if we do not do things to the glory of God, then obviously they are sin because they are direct disobedience to that truth specifically. And so what you begin to see in light of this truth is our world is literally drowning in their sin, in their rebellion against God. The level of sin, everything a natural person does becomes sin to God, becomes offensive. You can go to McDonald's and eat a cheeseburger and it is, it is not pleasing in the sight of God. It is offensive to God. You can, you can go to the bank and deposit your check for the month, but if you do not do it to the glory of God, it is offensive to God. And obviously we have the gross sins that we know we like to label as far worse of murdering or killing someone or stealing. Obviously those are bad, but no, everything not done to the glory of God becomes sin. And so you start to see the world is drowning in our sin before a holy and righteous God. The quick question might be, well, how do we do everything to the glory of God? And I think the simple answer is to acknowledge Him in all things. This is why we pray before a meal. Lord, thank you for this meal today. That is giving glory to God before you eat. Um, as you deposit your check into the bank account, Father, thank you for providing the work for me this month. Thank you for providing for us financially. I offer this back to you, Father. That's giving glory to God 
in our finances. And so you see the switch. Although it seems subtle, uh, the implications are massive. So the death is total. It reaches to everyone. It has rendered man unable to respond to God apart from his spirit. And it means that everything done in the flesh, no matter how good we might think it looks, is sin in the eyes of God because it is not done in faith. And apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Just a quick review of the main three points and then we'll close. So first we saw that we act according to our nature, that there are expressions in our lives that come from not just our you know, messing up in that moment, but they come from a, a broken heart, a depraved heart that is in rebellion to God. I was thinking about that, uh, and uh, we had our son outside yesterday. We were going for a little walk with Micah and let mom and baby get some fresh air. And this mosquito came, and he was trying to bite my five-day-old son. I'm like, what is your problem? How can you bite a little tiny baby? And it hit me that this is the mosquito's nature. It, he's acting according to his nature. It's not, you know, it's what he does. He bites people to get blood out of them. And so in the same way, we do things according to our nature. When we, when we see anger rising in our hearts, when we see uh, lust rising in our hearts and minds or greed, that's not the issue. The issue is we are acting according to our fallen nature given us by Adam. And so we need a new nature, not just a renovation of our actions. So we act according to our nature. The greatest reality we saw was the spiritual. And so the death that happened primarily was a spiritual death of Adam and Eve. And the death is total. That it affects everything that we do. Everything that we say is affected by this total death of our hearts and minds. So when we desire spiritual understanding, when we um, preach the gospel... We need to understand that unless God moves, nothing will happen. And that is the beginning, I think, of change. True change. I mean, transformation in someone's life when they realize, I can't do this. It has to be God. And you begin to repent and cry out for His healing and His solution. So our response to all this, I pray, is just like the pilgrim um, in Pilgrim's Progress that when you feel the weight of this, when you feel the burden building on your back of what we have done, where we are standing before God, that you begin to run to the cross of Christ and you say, you are my only hope, my only solution. You've got to help me. And that's where we must go with our state (laughs) as men and women. And I think we also must walk in humility with one another. Do not point a finger at You know, the guy on the street drinking from the bottle and saying, you know, what a loser, why doesn't he get a life? No, we are cut of the same cloth. And it might express itself more drastically in some than others. We may not be carried to the same extent of this fall as some, but we are of the same nature. And so let us walk humbly before our God, knowing that we all stand condemned apart from his grace. We all deserve wrath. And that is who we are as men and women. So husbands, um, do not condemn your wife's struggles or shortcomings, but seek to be a means of grace and patience with her. Allow Christ to work through you 
to encourage her, realizing that you are co-heirs to the kingdom of God. And wives, as you struggle with us as men, as you're with your husbands, seek to be a source of encouragement, of strength, of grace in their life, as Christ has so clearly demonstrated on the cross. We must walk humbly with one another and not um, with pride or arrogance as though we're better somehow. And as we relate to one another, let us not write each other off as too far gone or just rebellious. We need to pray. We need to seek. We need to love because we are all part of the same death. We are all part of the same curse. And so we must encourage one another. Let us give as we have been given much. And to close, I came across this prayer of, uh, I think it may have been Richard Baxter who was a Puritan pastor, but this prayer, I think, just hit home for me. I'm going to read this and then we'll close. The title of it is, The Cry of a Convicted Sinner. It says, Thou righteous and holy sovereign, in whose hand is my life, And whose are all my ways? Keep me from fluttering about religion. Fix me firm in it, for I am wavering. My decisions are smoke and vapor. And I do not glorify thee, or behave according to thy will. Cut me not off before my thoughts grow to responses, and the budding of my soul into full flower. For thou art forbearing, and good, and patient, and kind." Save me from myself, from the ploys and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebelling against thee, from wrong principles, views, and ends. For I know that all of my thoughts, all of my affections, my desires and pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself, have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost, to wear out thy patience, have lived in evilly in a word in action. Had I been a prince, I would have long ago crushed such a rebellion. Had I been a father, I would have long since rejected my child. O thou father of my spirit, thou king of my life, Cast me not into destruction. Drive me not from thy presence. But wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it that thy own hand may make it whole. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, (coughs) Father, we confess our arrogance as humans, Lord, our desire to discern for ourselves what is good and bad. Lord, I pray that you would wound our hearts, God. Let us not drift through this life thinking that we are pleasing you, thinking that we are glorifying you, Father, while we're being deceived. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see once again, Lord. Return the light upon our darkened eyes that we might see your glory, Father. We might behold your Son in his beauty and radiance, Lord. Father, we know that we don't like to look at such topics as our own fallen nature. Lord, it's not an uplifting, uh, it's not an uplifting topic to our hearts, Lord. It makes us angry. Lord, it makes us uh, sometimes more hard against you, Father. But Lord, I ask that you would give us hearts of flesh, Lord. 
Father, as we see the darkness of what happened on that day and how it has penetrated everything that we do as humans, Lord, I pray that in the darkness that your glory might shine all the brighter, Father, for we know where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Lord, and we praise you for that. Lord, may you be, may you be honored and lifted high through our lives, Lord, as you change us, as you give glory for yourself through your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. You are the Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps a podcast suggestion or topic, visit us online at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria.